So the shield of faith, part two of the shield of faith. Last week, we talked about the flaming arrows coming. And when we act by faith, when we live our lives by faith, it extinguishes the flaming arrows, as it said in Ephesians uh, 6.16. But what does that look like? We read two sections of scripture from Romans 5 and James chapter 1 and showed how bad circumstances, the flaming arrows, can turn into something good. But we have to apply faith to that in order for it to work. So let's read Romans 5, 3 through 5, and then we'll go to James 1, 2 through 4. So Romans 5, 3 through 5 says this, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Paul is talking about glorying in sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we see a progression from suffering all the way to hope. But we know that people that go through suffering don't always end up in the place of hope. You know, sometimes they're crushed by their sufferings and their hardships and their difficulties. But when we walk by faith, we can interpret the suffering the right way. We can see God's hand bringing us through it and we can become stronger on the other side. This is the same idea from James 1, 2 through 4, which James 1, 2 through 4 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So there we see the trials of many kinds. So we start with suffering in Romans 5. We start with trials in James 1, and they both end up with something positive. We see in James, it's mature and complete, not lacking anything. This is a picture of some of the trials. You know, we've all gone through trials in our lives that we would have chose not to go through. If we had the opportunity to avoid them, we would. But there are things in my life that I've gone through that now that I'm on the other side of it, I like the maturity that I've gained from going through those experiences. I like that. I wouldn't want to give up that maturity. I wouldn't want to give up that understanding. And even the strength that comes from having gone through that, you can go through similar things and trust God in them. That's how when we walk by faith, trials and suffering can be things that we rejoice in, that we're excited about because we see from the big picture that God's going to do something good through it, something better through it. But I wanted to just briefly talk about the idea of rejoicing in suffering, because I don't think that all suffering is suffering we should rejoice in. Now, there's a caveat to that that I'll get to in just a second, but I want to look at three types of suffering and how we should respond. The first type of suffering is just suffering for your own sin, your own mistakes. Let's say I was to uh, swear at my wife and then I'm having marriage problems. Well, <laughs> that's suffering. Should I rejoice that I'm having marriage problems because I was swearing at my wife? Well, of, of course I shouldn't rejoice in that. What should my response be to that? My response should be to repent, to change, you know, to say, I'm sorry, I've failed, and then endeavor to never do that again. That's 
repentance. So, so many times we suffer for our own sin, our own mistakes. There are things that we caused and we don't want to rejoice that we've sinned and failed and fallen. We want to repent. So our first response for suffering for our own sin is that we repent. Then there's the type of suffering that just comes from being part of this fallen world, part of this broken world. You know, we suffer because we're here. We age, we get sick, we are subject to, you know, financial problems when there's economic downturns. There's just lots of stuff that we deal with in this life. And that's not really something we need to rejoice in. I mean, if you get COVID-19, don't rejoice. What you need to do is resist. You, know, you need to pray, pray a prayer of faith for healing. Go to the doctor and see what they have for you. You know, practice uh, the social distancing thing. And now we're into the uh, shelter in place is what we're doing now. So do those things. Fight the battle on all fronts, but resist. You know, I'm getting older, as I mentioned before, as a hassle. I remember people that were older than me talking about the hassle of aging. You know, I don't like it. I would prefer to have a 30-year-old body again, but I just don't. It's mine is older now. But I want to resist the aging process. I want to eat right, exercise, pray prayers of faith over myself to have strength and to be renewed, those sorts of things. But we resist those types of sufferings. Then there's the type of suffering that comes by being part of the war, part of the spiritual battle. And when we go toe-to-toe with the devil, we can end up suffering because of it. And that's where we rejoice, because we know that we're making a difference for the kingdom of God. So when we rejoice for suffering in the war, that's when we're really hitting the nail on the head with this. So Matthew 5, 11 and 12 kind of gives a picture of this. In the end of the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So rejoice and be glad because you're being persecuted. People are saying evil things against you. Well, that doesn't sound like much fun, but You know that God is giving you a reward in heaven for it and that you are actually engaging in the spiritual battle. So many Christians don't get past the suffering for their own sin and suffering because they're part of this cursed world. They just are stuck in that area and they never get to really serving God and making a difference for the kingdom of God. When we suffer for making a difference for the kingdom of God, that's when true rejoicing can come in. But we also, now here's the caveat I mentioned earlier. We also can rejoice in suffering for our own sin if we combine it with faith and help the kingdom of God advance in our own hearts. For some people, the best thing that ever happened to them was they went to jail. For some people, the best thing that ever happened to them was they got fired. For some people, the best thing that ever happened to them was a consequence of their own sin. And then they realized, oh man, I need to change. I need to turn my life over to God. I need to start living for the Lord now instead of just doing my own thing. And so even when you're suffering for your own sin and the appropriate response is to repent, if you truly repent, then you can rejoice in the change that has happened in your heart. And when we go through the sufferings of this world, when we go through the hardships right now, the COVID-19 deal, and we're 
doing the social distancing uh, and the shelter in place thing. And for me, I hate that. I'm so looking forward to you being back in church so that we can have church together because it is so much more fun when you are here. But God is teaching me things through this. I am able to learn through this. You are able to learn things through this. And so we can rejoice even going through these types of sufferings. I didn't cause COVID-19. You didn't cause COVID-19. We're just caught up in the middle of it. So we don't have to repent for COVID-19. But we resist it. We also can learn new things. So that's a way that we can rejoice if we have inner growth that happens through that. Now, when we're talking about the shield of faith, the key in understanding these three things, these types of suffering, you know, when to hold up the shield of faith with regards to our suffering and just rejoice, when that means to repent, when that means to resist, the key is to know the difference. If you need to repent and you think that it's you really serving God, you know, I've had people tell me that the reason they can't keep a job is because they're a Christian. That's not the reason. The reason is because you're a bad employee. So don't think that you're fighting the war and you're just getting fired all the time. You're probably just a bad employee who happens to be a Christian, and then that's going to be bad for the kingdom of God. So if you get confused between which one it is, that can cause a serious problem. The power is when you know, is this time to repent? Is it time to resist or time to rejoice? All right. Now I want to look at three biblical examples of flaming arrows, the devil's schemes coming at people. Because when we understand what the devil's schemes are, then we can understand how to put those out and kind of get an idea of what some other things are. So we've got three examples from the scriptures that I want to talk about just to be able to really get an understanding of the sorts of things the devil does, the sorts of flaming arrows that come at people that we need to hold the shield of faith up against. Because Satan is still doing these things. And if we look at them closely, then we can understand them when they're happening to us. And we can also interpret other things the right way, other trials and difficulties and see, is this a flaming arrow of the evil one? Is this something I did to myself? Is it just a, a thing I'm caught up in, you know, like COVID-19? What is it? Let's look at three biblical examples of Satan's schemes, flaming arrows coming at us. So the first one is the situation with Job. The book of Job in the Old Testament is about a righteous man, a great man. He was a fantastic businessman. He was a great family man, and he did the right things. He was an upstanding citizen. He was a fantastic guy. But uh, something terrible happened to him. In fact, a series of bad things happened to him. So let's get a picture of that by going to Job chapter 1. We'll read verses 8 through 12. I'll kind of explain the situation. Job 1, 8 through 12. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Now, <laughs> I probably should stop right there. So Satan comes to heaven and then he's talking to God and it's this kind of somewhat bizarre situation but this seems like this still happens because you see in the New Testament that Jesus said to Peter, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. So Satan and God seem to have conversations periodically. I don't exactly know how that works, but we have biblical evidence of that. 
And here we go. Let me reread that. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? Have you not blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land? But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has. He will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then. Everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, there's a whole lot in that little section of scripture. But basically what happened after that was Satan went, uh, destroyed Job's business, destroyed Job's family, terrible things happened. Then Job did not curse God like Satan said he would. So then Satan was given access to Job's health. He became very sick, had very painful sores, all kinds of trouble and difficulty. And what Satan's plan, Satan's scheme was, was to hurt Job, hurt the people Job loves, hurt Job's business, and then drive a wedge between Job and God. So we see that now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. This is Satan speaking, and you can see the twisting that's in there because he's saying, now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has. Does God strike everything Job has? No, Satan strikes everything Job has. God does not do that. God allows Satan to do that, but this is not God's will. If you want to know what God's will for Job's life is, you'll look at Job's life before Satan has access and after Satan is finished with him. Job was healthy. His business was going well. He had a great family. That was God's plan for Job. When Satan had access, we see destruction and hurt and pain and ruin. So it's not God doing it, Satan doing it. And Satan's whole plan is to get Job to curse God to his face. That's what Satan is trying to do. So that's Satan's plan, his scheme. The fiery arrow coming at Job is the pain that he's going to go through, not just for its own sake, but as a tool of the enemy to try to get Job to curse God, to drive a wedge between God and Job. And Satan does that today. He will hurt us and try to get us to blame God. Man, just like it's important to understand the difference between things I need to repent of, things I need to resist, and suffering I need to rejoice for, it's also very important to understand who the author of that suffering is. If Satan is attacking you, you need to come against the enemy, resist the devil, and he will flee. You know, you don't rejoice and uh, accept what Satan is doing. You resist it. And you also, man, you cannot fall for the trick of going into suffering and then blaming God for it and having the wedge come in between you and God. That's the oldest trick in the book that's recorded of Satan. And he's still doing it today. So three lessons we learn from the book of Job. I think there's three clear lessons from the book of Job. The first one is God is good and the devil is bad. Make sure you get that lesson right. Lesson number two is that even if you're innocent, Job was a good guy. There wasn't something he did wrong. And so the wrath of God is coming on him. 
This was just the cruelty of the devil. Even if you're innocent, Satan can gain access to your life. So even if you're innocent, Satan can gain access to your life. And then the third lesson from Job is simply when you're going through hardships, don't insult the character of God. We need to trust God. Don't run away from God when you're hurting. Don't run away from God when your business falls apart. Don't run away from God in the hardship. Run to God. When we hold up the shield of faith, we're believing God is good, that God will reward those who earnestly seek him, that when we hope in him, it's going to work out. So in the hardship, in the difficulty, don't let Satan drive a wedge between you and God. You know, that loved one passes, that difficulty happens. Don't let Satan use that to drive a wedge between you and God, but run to God. That's how you hold up the shield of faith in that situation. That's the first scheme that we see of the enemy in the Bible, the one he tried on Job. Then let's go to the temptation of Jesus. Satan was tempting Jesus. We see that Jesus is led by the spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Again, what, what is that? But let's read that. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. So this is a really interesting situation where Satan is tempting Jesus. Now, how did Jesus get into this situation in the first place? It says the spirit led him into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Now, that's just wild, crazy stuff. God does not tempt us, but God will test us. God will test us in various different ways. What's the difference between God testing you and the temptation of the devil? Well, when God tests us, he's testing us to see if we will pass the test. When we pass the test, then we are advanced in our faith and God will give us more. He will give us an increase when we pass the test. Satan tempts us. He's not tempting us for our benefit. He's tempting us to destroy us. So when we fall into temptation, we lose. We lose things that we've built. It can be your ministry or things that you've worked for in this world. You fall to that temptation and you have lost. There is destruction and hurt and pain because of that temptation. So we see the motivation for Satan's temptation is to destroy. The motivation for God's testing is to give us increase. But one of the tests, this is where it can be a little tricky. One of the tests that God gives us is whether or not we will stand up under the temptation of the enemy. So God did not test Jesus, but the spirit did lead Jesus into the desert to be tempted by the devil. 
Now, God does not tempt us. We know that from the book of James. But God does leave us here to be tempted by the devil. And that's one of the tests we must pass. We must pass the test of being able to stand through the temptation of the enemy. Now, Jesus was tempted in a variety of ways, you know, turn these rocks into bread. He'd been fasting for 40 days. You know, a little bit of bread would be extremely helpful. So Satan tempts him with just his, his physical needs, his personal physical desires. Then he's got, you know, if you are the son of God, so it's kind of the, you know, prove yourself, man, you know, kind of that existential angst temptation, you know, prove who you are. Uh, And then he tempts him with the power, you know, I'll give you all these things. Satan tempts Jesus in a variety of different ways. And he tempts us in those ways, if we're susceptible to that and in other ways as well. But what's interesting about the temptation that uh, the devil was making against Jesus. And I'm thinking if he did this against Jesus, it's got to be his best stuff. You know, wouldn't he put his best stuff against Jesus? When you look at how Satan tempted him, there was deceit in there and twisting of truth in there. He was trying to get Jesus to bend to something that was false, to bend to something that wouldn't be right, but it sounded pretty close. Satan is quoting scripture to Jesus in his temptation. He's twisting it, just like the twisting When Satan was talking to God about Job, you know, strike your hand out against him. Well, God wasn't going to strike his hand out against him, but Satan was going to strike out against him. So there's a twisting there. And Satan is trying to twist the truth in his temptations against Jesus. And this is where it gets dangerous for you and me. Because how many times have you slipped into a temptation where the first part of it was like, oh, it's really not a big deal if I just do this. And then you get farther and farther down the road and all of a sudden you're trapped. You're caught in a a significant temptation, a significant problem. But didn't start off that bad. Didn't start off that terrible. It seemed okay. You know, you felt like, yeah, maybe it's not exactly right, but it's not that big of a deal. And so there's a twisting of the truth. You're walking down the wrong road but not really thinking it's the wrong road. You know, sin will build up over time. It doesn't take you down right away, but it takes time and then it will get you. I really like what Craig Rochelle said about this in uh, his leadership podcast, basically talking about how to avoid temptation. His phrase is don't play in the gray. You know, we've got the things that we know are right. We've got the things that we know are wrong. And then there's that gray area in between. How far can I go? Can I accidentally see something I shouldn't look at? How do I put myself in a position to accidentally see something? Well, now you're playing in the gray. Don't play in the gray because you're at that early stage of the temptation of the enemy and he's going to suck you into something as it goes down the road. So we see flaming arrow scheme of the devil. Number two is temptation where he twists the truth even using scripture to try to get you to think, oh, it's not that big of a deal, and then pull you in, and that can be a slippery slope that you fall down. So we want to be careful of that one. The way that we put up the shield of faith with regards to this temptation from the devil is the same way that Jesus did. Stand firmly on the truth. Put on the belt of truth. Satan will twist it just a little bit and try to get us to slide a little bit and then a little more, a little more, a little more. 
So when we stand on the truth and hold firmly to the truth, not deviating at all, but just believing what the word of God says and walking in the truth of God, then it protects us from this flaming arrow of the temptation of the devil. Don't play in the gray. Don't follow a little bit down that path. Stay on the right path, believing that God has something good for you. So that's how you hold up the shield of faith. And then the third one that we have, the third example, biblical example of Satan's schemes, flaming arrows coming after people is with Judas and with Ananias and Sapphira. And this is the foothold where, you know, we're not supposed to go to bed angry, not give the devil a foothold. What that means is that when we stay angry and we don't forgive, we don't come to peace with the situation, then something gets in our heart that the enemy can exploit. An easy button gets in there and the devil can hit that easy button and take advantage of us. So there are certain things that the devil will leverage, certain flaws that we have in our heart that the devil will leverage like pride, anger, an offendable spirit, you know, etc. all kinds of different things. Satan will leverage those flaws, push those buttons to try to get us to do something evil. So that's a scheme of the enemy. Now, let's do Ananias and Sapphira. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 36, we'll read through chapter 5, verse 5. So Ananias and Sapphira were early believers in the early church in the book of Acts. And the people in the book of Acts were extremely generous, absolutely were 100% all in with God. So let's look at that. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. We'll hear more from Barnabas later in the book of Acts. He sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So Barnabas, the son of encouragement, has a heart to advance the kingdom of God. And so he sells his property and brings all the money and brings it to church and makes a donation. It's amazing. It's a tremendous donation. Is he required to do that? No, it was just on his heart to do that. He so cared about what God was doing and supporting what the apostles were doing that he sold his property and brought all the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Other people knew that, of course. It was more open in their culture to see what people were giving. You know, we give more secretly, but in that culture, it was just out in the open and people saw it and some people rejoiced, other people Satan used it to cause a problem in their hearts. Let's keep reading chapter five, verse one. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Ananias there is deceived by the enemy. He does what is wrong. Verse three, it said, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? So we see the devil is involved in this. 
Satan hit Ananias and Sapphira's easy button, their difficulty, a foothold in their heart. They obviously had a problem with wanting to measure up with other people. So they saw that uh, Barnabas, Joseph, brought this incredible gift, and they wanted to be seen like Joseph, like Barnabas. They wanted to be up in that level, but they also didn't want to give all the money. So they kept some back. There's nothing wrong. Uh, God expects a tithe, a tenth of the increase. He doesn't expect us to sell everything we own and bring it to church and then go live on the street. He expects a tenth. So Ananias and Sapphira were doing something above and beyond the call, but they were lying about it. And Peter says that Satan entered Ananias's heart. So this was a, a tool of the devil, of the enemy, to be able to get him to do evil, even when uh, he didn't need to. We want to be careful not to have those flaws, that pride, that offendable spirit, that anger. And even with Judas, we won't read this passage, but you can go to Matthew 26 and, and look at it. The woman comes and this alabaster jar of, of fancy perfume, very expensive, and pours it on Jesus' feet. And after that, you know, the disciples, all of them were offended, but specifically Judas, because they're like, hey, this could have been sold and the money given to the poor. What are we wasting it on Jesus for? And Judas, immediately after that, sold Jesus out to the Pharisees sold Jesus out to the chief priest. He went there, got his 30 pieces of silver. He sold Jesus out because he was offended and he wanted the money put in the treasury so he could take some of it and all these different things. He was, he was getting deeper into these uh, temptations and the lies of the enemy. But Satan entered into Judas when he turned Jesus over. So Judas has an offendable spirit. He also has a selfish spirit, a covetous spirit, and Satan exploited that. In order to hold up the shield of faith against the devil's scheme of exploiting a flaw in your heart, a flaw in your character, get the flaws in your heart and the flaws in your character out. Believe in the process of sanctification. We are better off the closer we are with Jesus. The more we get pride out of our heart, the more we get Uh, anger out of our heart, the more we can love our enemies and offer forgiveness and get free from all of those things, it protects us against the enemy because it takes his easy buttons away. So we want to believe in the sanctifying power of God through the Holy Spirit so that we can be cleansed in those ways and not give the enemy an easy button. Three biblical examples of flaming arrows, the devil's schemes. First one was Job. Uh, Satan hurting people to try to drive a wedge between them and God. If you've been injured, if you've been hurt in some way, and you've then drifted from God, run to God in your pain, in your hardship, in your difficulty. God isn't hurting you. God wants to help you. Then uh, the second one, the temptation of Jesus, Satan will twist the truth. Don't give in to that twisting but believe the straight, honest truth and go with that. And then the third one, the foothold, where Satan will leverage a flaw in your heart, like pride, anger, and offendable spirit, things like that. He will leverage that. And the way we combat that is by letting God build our heart up so that we can be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So those are three examples of the flaming arrows. 
When we hold up the shield of faith, it will extinguish those and will be stronger for having gone through them. Let's pray. And I want to believe God for you to be able to see the devil's schemes in your life and to combat them, to hold up the shield of faith and extinguish that flaming arrow. We've seen some examples. Now look at your life. What is the enemy trying to do with you? Is it one of those? Is it something else? You know, we can believe God to not be unaware of the devil's schemes, but to see his schemes and get victory over them. I'm going to pray, but if you have a prayer need, you can uh, email that to prayer at goodhope.ag. Would love to have you connect with us through prayer, through the email. The prayer team gets all those emails, but let's pray uh, over this first. So Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us the shield of faith. We just have to put it on and hold it up so that we can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Let us not be fooled by his schemes, by his temptations, his desire to injure us and have us blame you and back away from you, Lord, or even his exploitation of a flaw that we have. Lord, help us to grow past those flaws, to see through the temptation of the enemy and hold on to the truth and to run to you in the midst of our hardship. And Father, help us to see any other way the devil is trying to hurt us, trying to confuse us, trying to get us off of you. There's so many different schemes that he has. These are just three major ones. But Lord, uh, we know the devil has more schemes, but you know all of them. And you can reveal those to us by your spirit. So I pray, Lord, you would give us wisdom and understanding so that we could see those schemes and overcome them by faith. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.